please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. You know, we like to think of the 21st century, especially in the United States, we like to think of this as an enlightened era of human progress. That here in, in America, in 2016, such atrocities as slavery and genocide could never happen again. But if we believe that, we're only fooling ourselves. There are more than 27 million people living in slavery today. That's more than at any other time in history, including the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. More people are slaves today than ever. When we talk about genocide, we think of the systematic slaughter of 6 million Jews and other undesirables at the hands of Nazis and what we call the Holocaust. But today, there are over 42 million babies aborted every year around the world. When we read history, we shake our heads at the German people, many of them professing Christians who turned a blind eye to what Hitler was doing. But what about those of us who do the same thing today? Oppression, racism, gender confusion, same-sex attraction, murder, prejudice, bigotry, genocide. These are all the results of humanity's rebellion against its Creator. It's all sin. And it's all the result of sin. Specifically, the sin of denying perverting or forgetting the image of God found in every human being. Really the best way to address most of the, the controversial and challenging issues of our society today is to go back to the beginning. To go back to the basics, to the foundational truth that people, all people, every person is created by God as unique that we are distinct from anything else in the universe and carry within us the very image of our Creator. When we allow that truth to shape our view of every human life, it will challenge and change many of our views. It will challenge and change our hearts, our minds, our speech, and our conduct towards other people. Look with me in Genesis 1 at verses 11 and 12. This is during the third day of creation. It says, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now skip ahead to, to verse 20. This is the fifth day of creation. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Now, you probably noticed a very repetitive word. Kinds, right? That's a Bible speak for species. Okay, basically that's what that word means. And it tells us that dogs make more dogs, right? They don't make cats. Nobody's experienced that, I hope. If, if, If so, go see a vet. Things only come from things like themselves. That's how God created the world. Apple trees, their seeds grow more apples. So that's how God created the world to work. But also notice that each act of creation begins with God said and concludes with it was good. See, in creation, God spoke with authority. For six days, He said, let there be, and there it was. (laughs) And it was good. Every time it was good. The expression of God's will is always good. So first we see God established everything by His power and authority, by speaking it into existence. And second, we see that God declared it to be good. That tells us that God takes delight in His creation. He isn't indifferent to this planet and to the stars in the universe. Everything that was made was the exact expression of God's desire. But then we see a sudden shift in the pattern. Look with me at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that He had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Notice here when God makes... Humanity, instead of saying something like, let the earth, let the land bring forth, or let the waters produce, when God created human beings, He didn't say, let the earth, let the air, let the water. He said, let us. Let us. Instead of speaking to creation, God was speaking to Himself, to the triune Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all active together in creation. 
And rather than man and woman being created after any other kind, they share their likeness with God. The Creator Himself. Now, why is that significant? Because we are unlike any other creature in that we are made after God's kind. We are made after His likeness. We are God's offspring. And what else in this passage sets us apart from the created order? Well, we alone are given authority to rule over all other creatures. We are given charge over the rest of creation. And then after all this, God once again changes the pattern. Instead of saying that the sixth day was good, God says it was very good. My point in going through all of this is simple. People aren't just more sophisticated and better adapted creatures. We aren't distinct among other organisms only by a matter of degree. Humans are uniquely created in the image of God. We share a special relationship with the Creator that no other creature experiences. We see this further in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Genesis chapter 2 kind of zooms in. So Genesis 1 kind of gives you the, if you've ever been on Google Earth, you know, you're like way up here looking at God's creation. You get to Genesis 2, that's like the street view. You know, you kind of you zoom right on down and you can see people standing on their front porch. So Genesis 2 is giving us the, the, the more close-up view of how God created man and woman. And for Adam, he takes the dust of the earth, he fashions him, he breathes into him the breath of life. And then look at verse uh, 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Notice how intimately God was involved in man and woman's creation. He didn't just speak them into existence like He did the rest of creation. No, God chose to get His hands dirty. And He gets down into the dirt, into the mud and the clay, and He fashions and shapes Adam, and He imparts something of Himself into Adam. He breathes into His nostrils the breath of life. And then when he makes Eve, he takes something of Adam and imparts it into Eve. When God made people, he was deeply, intimately, personally involved. In Ephesians 2.10, we heard Paul wrote, For we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship can be translated handiwork, masterpiece. It actually comes from the same Greek word from which we get the word poem. So, Kathy, Paul says that we are God's poem. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? This is a foundational truth that should shape our view of life itself. It is the biblical worldview for human life. When we recognize every human being is created in God's image, it has radical implications for practically every issue that our culture is debating right now. And when we embrace this simple yet profound truth, the seemingly complicated and confusing issues 
become more clear. So this morning I want us to think about the issue of abortion and what being made in God's image tells us about that. Let's do a little bit of math. There are roughly 42 million abortions per year worldwide. That's 115,000 per day, which almost equals 4,792 unborn babies aborted every hour. So think about the time we sit in here today. 5,000 human lives will be extinguished before they even get to breathe their first breath. That's 80 babies a minute, or 1.3 a second. You couldn't keep count of the rate at which innocent human lives are being taken. And these kinds of numbers make your head spin. And they can numb your conscience. And they can be too easily dismissed, but not so to God. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, Are two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I would say that Jesus is intentionally making an understatement there. Here in this short passage of Scripture, Jesus tells us two important truths. One is that God is our Father. He reveals to us the intimate, loving relationship that we can have with God, our Creator. And the second is that God, the Father, our Creator, sees, knows, and cares about every minute detail regarding human life. Nothing too small in your life escapes His attention. Now let me ask you this. Based on this illustration of Jesus... At what point is a life too small or insignificant in the eyes of the Father in heaven? Is the value of human life found in your size, your age, your appearance, or your abilities? Is human life only worth what it can produce or accomplish in the world? Or is human worth intrinsic, distinct, and set apart from any other physical characteristic? Psalm 127.3 answers that for us. And it says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children a reward from Him. But sadly, our culture no longer views children as a heritage or a blessing from God. No, children are a choice. And all too often they're seen as a burden, an accident, or an inconvenience. See, the underlying question in the abortion debate is undoubtedly whether that which is in the womb is a child. Is what that woman is carrying, is it a person, a human being created in the image of God and for whom Jesus Christ died on the cross? Because once we can answer the question about what is in the womb... Everything else about this comes into perspective. One author points out, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. If the fetus or embryo, if it's just a mass of cells, if it's just a glob of tissue that has the potential of becoming a human person, whatever, whatever that means, as if it has the potential of becoming anything else, right? 
If that's all it is, then the argument's over. There's no need to justify abortion. But then he goes on to say, if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is required. It doesn't matter how complex the abortion issue may seem. If what is in the womb is a person, then every argument in favor of abortion falls apart. Regardless of where you might currently stand on this issue, and regardless of the politics, you know, and I hate that we can't talk about this without people thinking about politics. But before this was ever a political issue, this was an issue of God's Word. An issue of philosophy, an issue of faith, a deep emotional issue before it was politicized. So let's put that aside. No matter where you stand on this, I want you to imagine for a moment that what is growing in the womb of that woman is a person formed and created in God's image by God Himself. Let's just imagine, whether you agree with that right now or not, just pretend like that's the case. If that's true, then let's consider these common arguments that defend abortion. Like the one, women have a right to reproductive health care and privacy with their doctors. Now, this is what I would call a straw man argument. Because no reasonable person would ever argue that men and women don't have a reasonable right to privacy with their doctors. I mean, any of us would say that, yes, you've got a right to privacy with your doctor, whether you're a man or a woman, pregnant or not. And no one would argue that women shouldn't have access to health care for every system of their body and phase of life, including reproduction. So reproductive health care, yes, of course, any reasonable person wants a woman to have access to that. But no man or woman has a right to a private conversation with the doctor to conspire about how and when to end someone else's life. Does that make sense? I have no right to privacy with anybody to talk about how I'm going to kill somebody. And if what is in the womb is a human being, that's exactly what's happening. And we are morally obligated to protect that unborn child regardless of whether it violates somebody's privacy. The second argument, a woman should have the right to choose. Again, Nobody disagrees with the value and importance of personal choice. But do you believe that I should have unlimited rights to make whatever choice I want to make? Do you? About anything I want to do? Of course not. We have laws against that sort of thing. And if a toddler or a teenager becomes burdensome or expensive, as they are wont to do, as a parent... Should I have the right to simply eliminate them? Of course not. So again, when it comes to abortion, the real question isn't about whether a woman has a choice to end her child's life. It's whether that woman actually has in her womb a child, a human being created and recognized by God as a valuable person. Because again, if that's true, we have a moral obligation to honor life. And that supersedes any personal hardship that might come as a result of an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. As David Platt puts it plainly, choosing to terminate innocent life is by definition choosing to murder. A third argument, what if the child will be born with a disability? It's a good question. I know that's a tough issue. 
And that's one that many people, sadly, have had to, to face. But does it really matter if a child will be born with Down syndrome or another disability? Again, if we really believe what Psalm 139 says, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, then it doesn't matter. You know, in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come across a man who was born blind. And the disciples were wondering, you know, whose fault was this? Is it something that his parents did or somehow something he did, maybe in the womb or I don't know exactly what they were thinking about that. But, but who's responsible? But Jesus said it was no one's fault that this man was born blind. Rather, Jesus said this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I read an article this past week, an interview with Rory Feek. You guys probably know the names Joey and Rory Feek. Uh, she was the, the country music star who died of cancer this past year. Their daughter, Indiana, was born with Down syndrome. And in the interview, he talks about how people encourage them to abort their daughter after the test showed that she had Downs. People told them that she was a mistake. But he said, and he said that once people found out, once the child was even born and people kind of started to find out that she had Down syndrome, he said that the most common response wasn't congratulations, it was I'm so sorry. And his response was probably far more gracious than mine would have been. He said this, that's such a strange response to the birth of a child. I didn't and don't think anything negative about their responses. I probably would have said the same thing in their shoes. It's what society has told them, told all of us. Oh, you didn't get a regular baby. You got something less, a burden that will last a lifetime. And I get it. That's the messaging that is out there most, I think, but it's wrong. God doesn't make mistakes. And he went on to write, Indiana is not less than any other child. Different is not less. It doesn't make her life any less meaningful, her dreams or feelings any less important. And then finally, Rory addressed the heartbreaking statistic that around 80% of parents who get tested and learn their unborn child has Down syndrome have them aborted. 80%. He wrote this, The world has told us that they are less. A mistake. But I don't believe they are. At least I know Indiana's not. When she was born, Joey and I said, this is the child God wants us to have, and we believed it, and we were right. I cannot imagine Joey not having those two years to be a mama to Indiana and to get to experience the love and happiness that Indy brought to her. God knew that. He made it so. It was his gift to her, like Indy is my gift now. She is the smiling, she is the smile on the face of a father who should be crying. She is the joy and the life of a family that should be filled with sadness. Who has the right to keep that child from being born to display the works of God? And then another argument that people make is what about instances of rape or incest? Well, I, I group this in with the previous question. We come back to the fundamental question, is the baby in the womb a person? If so, then our perspective changes. Would you murder a child outside the room, the womb, for being a product of rape? Would we be okay if a mother gave birth to a child that was a product of rape and then later decided it was too painful and killed the child? Would we be okay with that? 
Would you dispose of a child who later became ill, disabled, or disfigured? Would you? Then why would we do it inside the womb? Why punish a child for the father's crime? Why destroy a child before they have the chance to display the works of God in their life through their physical or mental challenges? And some might respond, David, golly, don't you care about the feelings of the woman? Of course I care. God cares too. But if a woman was raped and the the rapist was caught, would we encourage this woman to murder him so she could have emotional relief? We would never condone someone killing someone else in order to spare them emotional distress, would we? Again, it comes down to the question, what is the woman carrying? Is it a person? A human being made in the image of God. Now, let me just talk for a moment to address any women in the room or maybe listening online or or, or on the radio who maybe you have had an abortion for whatever reason. Or perhaps maybe you know someone who who has had an abortion. We have to remember this, that the God who is just and stands against abortion is also the God who is gracious and forgives every sin, even the sin of abortion. Jesus cares as much about the mother as He does the unborn child. And so should we, the church. Do you hear that? We must care every bit about that mother as we do that unborn child. And, and, you know, let me just tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a man. And he traveled from town to town, tearing husbands from their wives and parents from their children. He would send them to jail and preside over their executions. All in what he later discovered was a misplaced spiritual zeal. This man's guilt must have been unbearable as he recalled scenes in his past of watching men and women being killed by a mob of people throwing stones at them. But this man discovered that though his guilt was great, God's mercy was greater still. Who was this man? It was the Apostle Paul. And listen to what he wrote to his friend Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. And the same Paul also wrote in Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're one of those whose heart has been broken by abortion, I want to say two things to you right now. First is there is nothing God wants more than to help you experience His forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the second thing I want to say is that the path to experiencing that forgiveness is not easy, but there is help along the way. There are some godly and gracious women in this church that I know would be glad to pray with you and to walk with you down that path of grief and healing. And we can point you in the direction of Christian counseling that can help you overcome any post-abortion trauma that you may be experiencing. Jesus Christ and His church want you to experience the truth that God forgives entirely, He heals deeply, and He restores fully. 
You see, church, when we oppose abortion, we're not opposing women. We're not opposing women's health. Being pro-life is being pro-woman. We care about the woman outside the womb just as much as we might care about that girl inside the womb. And studies have proven that the majority of women who undergo abortion do suffer long-lasting emotional, spiritual, and relational trauma. If we are to be a compassionate people, then we must speak the truth about these often lifelong consequences. See, women who resort to abortion do so because they believe it to be the solution to a problem. But it's not. In fact, it compounds any perceived problem by adding physical and health-related issues, emotional and psychological scarring, guilt and shame, nightmares and spiritual oppression. And it robs that mother and any father that might be in the picture of the future joys, blessings and rewards. That child, created in God's image, designed with dignity, was meant to bring to them. Opposing abortion is the compassionate stand to take for both child and parent. But again, it comes down to the question, what is in the womb? Is it a child or just a potential child? Is it a product of conception or a human person fashioned by God in His image? And does the Bible address this issue? We've seen the biblical worldview about human life, but does the Bible nail down for us whether the unborn child is a human life? Look with me to Psalm chapter 139, our Old Testament reading. Let me read to you again these verses. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, what does this scripture say about the unborn in the womb? It says that God is as intimately, personally involved in the creation of each human life as he was in creating Adam and Eve. You remember how God did more than just speak them into existence? That in creating the first man, God was like a sculptor, working with clay, making that masterpiece. In fashioning Eve, God was like a skilled surgeon. And here in Psalm 139, we see God knitting, weaving together the psalmist in his mother's womb. These images of creation echo Ephesians 2.10. That we are each God's workmanship. His masterpiece, intricately, artistically, purposefully designed by Him. And these verses are even more stunning when you remember that the psalmist wrote this without any of our modern knowledge of the inner workings of a baby's development in the womb. Even to the ancients, this work of creation evoked awe and amazement. But the greatest thing about these verses is the glimpse it gives us to God's relationship with that unborn child in the womb. He is intimately involved in the life of that baby from the moment of conception. I love the story of of a son who was sitting on his dad's lap and they were both looking into a mirror. And the son said, Daddy, who made me? And he said, well, God made you, son. And then he thought for a minute and said, well, who made you? And the dad said, God made me too. 
And the son said, well, who made granddad? And he said, God made him too. And the boy thought for a minute, so who made great-granddad? He said, God made him too. And then he just sat there and looked in the mirror. And he said, well, you know, Dad, it seems to me God's been doing a better job in recent years. <laughs> and laugh as we might, I think the boy was maybe onto something, you know. See, God so starts at conception to develop a child that that unborn child has a detectable heartbeat at just 18 days. And he has his own brain waves. And she has her own set of DNA. Her own unique fingerprints that are unique, never to be created before or since. But there's more God's Word has to say. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Psalm 22, 9 through 10 says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. And in Luke 1, 15, the angel Gabriel said that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And if you look at the Greek word there, it's really the Greek word for the womb. From the womb he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. How could that be if he wasn't a human being made in the image of God while he was in that womb? And you remember that when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, came to visit Elizabeth, as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the baby in her womb leapt for joy, and Elizabeth herself was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth even said, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Elizabeth had no doubt what she was carrying. In Galatians 1, 15-16, Paul says that God set him apart from his mother's womb and called him by grace to preach the gospel. See, God reminds us in His Word that though the unborn baby may be visibly hidden from us, he or she is not unhidden from God. God sees children in wombs all around the world right now, and He is personally and intimately forming, fashioning, knitting, crafting, nurturing, and shaping them in wonderful, mysterious ways. So what would God have us do with this information? Let me give you four action steps very quickly. One, I want to encourage you to continue to learn. Continue to learn. We've only really looked at the biblical worldview of when human life begins. But scientific evidence is overwhelming that what is inside that mother's womb is a separate human being, not just a part of her body, but a human being with his own brain waves, with his own DNA, with his own heartbeat, with his own fingerprints. Educate yourself to the wonder and amazement of God's craftsmanship in the womb. Secondly, pray. And ask God to end the injustice of abortion in our country and around the world. To forgive us for whatever parts we have played in abortion. And to convict those in positions of power to use their influence to put it to its end. Three, get involved. Get involved. There is a political part to this. Because we, the people, the government is ours. And unlike most countries in human history, we have a say. God has given us that, and we need to be good stewards of that. So vote. Vote your conscience. I vote for pro-life people. And I will tell you that right now. 
Because I cannot get on board with anybody who can get on board with killing people. Vote. Write your congressmen, your senators, and encourage them to take courses of action that, that honor and defend the most innocent of our society. And number fourth, support ministries that seek to uphold the value of every unborn human life. When you tithe, a portion of your tithe goes to the cooperative program that supports efforts to educate people about pro-life issues. And it goes to crisis pregnancy centers. Through our Go and Tell Fund as well, we support the Georgia Baptist Children's Home and we are actively involved in working with the foster care system in our own county to help these troubled parents and children. God is pro-life. He's pro-abundant life. He's pro-eternal life. You are created in God's image. He knows you intimately. He loves you deeply. Christ died to save you from your sin, even from the worst of your sins. He died to give your life fuller meaning, to give you eternal life. He puts before you a choice today. To choose life or choose death. In Deuteronomy 30.19, he says, I want you to choose life that you and your children may live. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'll be standing down front to help you today to choose life eternal. And I pray that if God is calling you to unite with our church family, you will come down and stand with us as we try to honor the image of God in every human being in our community, in our state, and in our world to make a difference in their lives because God loves them. Would you stand with me as we sing?